Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. I will always remember the first time that I saw Jupiter through a telescope. It was at Lowell Observatory up in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I remember putting my eye up to the eyepiece and looking through there, and I really didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what I was going to really see. I knew it was going to be Jupiter. But I looked through there, and I was like, oh my god, I can freaking see the storm bands on this planet. And I can see moons. I know that those are moons. I can tell what they are. They look so different than the stars. And I remember just standing there and just feeling this profound sense of awe. And I love taking my telescope out and letting people have that experience too. I love watching them put their eye up to the eyepiece, kind of ho-hum, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, oh, wow, oh my God. And then they start commenting on things that they're seeing and asking questions. And when they're all done, they stand up and look at me. And it's like the look on their faces have changed. The tone of their voice has changed. And when they're all done, they kind of walk away with this stagger of days or drunkenness with awe or something. It's the coolest thing to watch. For me, when I saw that, I really honestly felt like I was looking at this living thing out in space. And I don't know how else to describe it other than that, just this living thing that really existed. It wasn't just a picture I was seeing in a book. I remember turning around and finally making eye contact with another earthbound human and not even knowing what to say. And so Lowell Observatory will always be a really special place for me because of that experience. But then that sense of awe didn't end right there. I also got to go see the telescope that was used to discover Pluto back in 1930. And that made my head spin too. And so it should come as no surprise for me to say to you that Lowell Observatory is really worth a top spot on your bucket list of night sky experiences. And I also promise you that you're going to love the town of Flagstaff. If you like the outdoors, you're going to love all the stuff you can do there. There's skiing and snowboarding, mountain biking, hiking, camping. Oh, and then as far as hiking goes, you have to try out the lava river caves. It's this underground lava tube that is a hiking experience like nothing else. You'll also love the old downtown area. I love visiting all the shops and the incredible restaurants. And they have local breweries and even a meadery. You know mead? the oldest fermented drink in the world that was made famous by the Vikings. Flagstaff is truly a wonderland for night sky enthusiasts, starting with the fact that they were the world's first international dark sky community. And there's three nearby national monuments that are all international dark sky parks. 
and those include Wupatki, Sunset Crater Volcano, and Walnut Canyon. And they're all so different from each other, but so spectacular. They are so worth the visit. And then a bit to the northwest of Flagstaff is Grand Canyon National Park. It's also an international dark sky park. And the skies are so pristine and so dark there that if it's a moonless night when you visit, the Milky Way will cast a shadow. So freaking cool. And then a bit to the east of Flagstaff is Meteor Crater, and it is the best preserved crater in the entire world. So I'm excited to share with you this episode because I chat with Dr. Jeffrey Hall, who's the executive director of Lowell Observatory. So in addition to his duties as the executive director, Dr. Hall has also worked on a long-term program of monitoring solar and stellar activity cycles. And the cool thing is, is it's given them an astronomical perspective to the solar influences on Earth's climate change. He's also the chair of the American Astronomical Society's Committee on Light Pollution, Radio Interference, and Space Debris. And these are all really huge subjects when it comes to the night sky. He's also the chair of the Solar Observatory Council for the Association of Universities for Research in Astronomy. And if all of that were not enough, he's also on the board of directors for the Flagstaff Symphony Orchestra, and he serves as a substitute organist at his church. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Dr. Jeffrey Hall. Dr. Jeffrey Hall, thank you so much for joining me on the Night Sky Tours podcast from Flagstaff, Arizona. Hi, nice to be here. So I would love it if you would share with us a little bit of history of Lowell Observatory and, of course, your biggest claim to fame there, which is Pluto. It is indeed, yeah. So we we go back to the territorial days. We were founded in 1894 by Percival Lowell. Um, who came out here from Boston, founded an observatory, and he was looking for what he thought was evidence of intelligent life on Mars. Uh, and we know today he was wrong about that, although Mars may well have had life in the past. We know it had water on its surface in the past. Uh, but Lowell also thought there was another planet out beyond Neptune, which at the time he founded the observatory, there that was the most distant planet known. And he spent years trying to calculate where he thought it should be and and looking for it and he never discovered it you know he died rather abruptly of a stroke in 1916 but indeed 1930 uh clyde tombaugh discovered pluto here at the observatory it turned out we actually had observed pluto prior to lowell's death they just didn't know they'd seen it oh what Um, a bummer for him Right. Um, And in fact, after the discovery, then many other observatories went back and realized they had images of of Pluto in images of the sky they happened to have taken. It's just nobody knew it was there because nobody had done the the systematic survey to see to see it moving and determine that this was actually another planet in our solar system. So definitely the thing for which Lowell is uh, most famous. So Clyde Tombaugh obviously had a lot of patience to be able to sit there. So explain to people how he was able to discover that it was that Pluto was a planet 
and why it took so much tenacity to just stick it, it, with it. It really is an amazing amount of tenacity. The, the basic idea is you take an image of a given spot of sky and wait for six days and then go back and take another image um, and see if anything's moved. You know, the very distant stars will not appear to move within that kind of a time scale. But and that was planet, the easy, that was the easy part. That's the easy part. <laughs> then you got to pick out the planet. And you know, Lowell thought that that there was a big planet out there, and, and that's what he was calling planet X. And what we found was not exactly what he was looking for because it's much smaller. And because it's much smaller, Pluto is much fainter. So it's just like another little dot amid thousands of stars. And so Clyde had taken hundreds of these pairs of images of the sky and then had to painstakingly search each of them using an instrument called a blink comparator. We still have it on display right down the hall from my office here, which basically flips a mirror and flips your point of view back and forth from one of the identical plates to the other. So if there's a planet, you can sort of see it moving back and forth on the plate. And that's what Clyde finally discovered in February of 1930 on a pair of plates that he had taken just a couple of weeks earlier. My grandmother was born in 1930. So to me, that kind of ties it to, to my lifetime. I'm younger than that. But, um, but it's amazing to think that it was the same century that we were all born. And it's so cool. Exactly. Right. Um, and it, yeah, and it greatly expanded our, well, you know, Pluto was the, the first object discovered in what we now call the trans-Neptunian region of the solar system. And the next such object wouldn't be discovered for another 62 years uh, out there in the Kuiper Belt. So, yeah. so I've heard some people talk about perhaps a new planet X, so to speak, are we still looking for planets beyond Pluto? Oh, yeah. And, and no such planet has been discovered yet, although it definitely has been hypothesized based on the, the character and distribution of orbits of Kuiper Belt objects and what a massive body would tend to do to those because planets interact with other planets. And that's sort of how the whole solar system evolves dynamically over hundreds of millions to billions of years. So, yeah, we are absolutely still searching for things. Undoubtedly, there are many other things out there in the Kuiper Belt, ob Kuiper Belt objects we haven't discovered <clears throat> yet. Um, of course, there's the whole debate about what is and isn't a planet. Poor Pluto! Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and, and you know, that, that whole debate has actually been very good for Lowell because the amount of attention and publicity all of the controversy has brought to Pluto and to an extent to astronomy in general has, has been overall a good thing for us. You know, um, so Bruce Kosevich, who works for Lowell Observatory, he lives yep. here in Fountain Hills where I live. Absolutely. And everywhere, every year we have a Thanksgiving Day parade in our town. And <laughs> so we do uh, kind of a lineup of the planets. And we do Pluto at the end with a stuffed animal Pluto from Disney attached to it. And Bruce Kosevich carries that for us. And it's so funny because you get a few of those party poopers who are like, Pluto's not a planet. But most people, when we walk by, they're cheering and they get out of their seats and they're so excited yep. 
because it's the end underdog. <laughs> yep, it is, and 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 of course we love Pluto, of course, and you know I think there are there are compelling reasons to to call it a planet. I I think what what's very confusing about the current definition is officially it's designated as a dwarf planet, but at the same time the International Astronomical Union has said, but a dwarf planet is not a planet, which is just among other things, it's just confusing nomenclature. You know, I think with a fair definition of planet, you could, it's not just Pluto, there's several other objects out in the Kuiper belt, as well as in the inner solar system and, you know, the, the main asteroid belt itself, like Ceres, that you could fairly call a planet, although they are indeed dwarf planets because they're pretty small. They're smaller than the others. And, you know, it, 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 in that case, you know, Pluto just becomes the archetype of a whole new class of planets that we are beginning to discover and understand as we learn more about the real nature of our solar system. I love that when we finally got out there and got a really good picture of Pluto, it had a great big heart on it. <laughs> I know. And, you know, that that was the funniest thing, because when the first demotion, when the demotion happened in 2006, you know, we tried to take, we at Lowell tried to take a pretty neutral stand on it because there was no way we could really take a position without just being, you know, either, well, they're just irritated or, you know, they're giving up on Pluto. You know, there was, it was lose, lose. Um, so, you know, we, the way we spun it at that point was, you know, look, we've got a spacecraft on the way to Pluto right now, New Horizons. One of our faculty members at Lowell is a lead member of that mission team. And when we get there, we're going to learn all sorts of interesting things that we didn't expect about the other solar system. So we're really focused more on the science than what you call it. So we tried to take a very scientific, logical approach. And then, of course, we get there and, yeah, it has a heart. <laughs> it's like, oh, geez, all right. Now we're pulling the emotional card here. It's awesome. I love it so much. But there's been a lot of other discoveries at Lowell Observatory, too. So can yeah. you share a few of those with us? Oh, yeah, that, that would make for a very long podcast. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one that I'll particularly call out, we're most famous for the discovery of Pluto, but perhaps much more fundamental predated that. Back to the time when Percival Lowell was still alive in 1912, uh, the very first observations of cosmological redshifts which ultimately led to the Big Bang Theory and the general current understanding of the expansion of the universe were done right here at Lowell Observatory. Um, I can look right out the window of my office and see the Clark Telescope Dome right there uh, by Vesto Melvin Slipher. And the reason we were doing that is, um, you know, at that time in 1912, we had, astronomers had virtually no understanding of what the universe was like beyond the solar system. We didn't know about other galaxies, really didn't understand the structure of our own galaxy. But what we did see out there when we looked with our telescopes were these you know, spiral objects that at the time were called spiral nebulae. Percival Lowell thought they maybe they were truly nebulae in our own galaxy that were maybe other solar systems in the process of forming, which was a totally logical thing to think. And so being as interested as he was, in life in the universe, he told Vesto Slipher, you know, observe these things. And when Slipher did with the, the old spectrograph that's still on display here, yeah, he found the that by and large, the galaxies are just moving, these, these objects were moving away from us at 
crazy high speeds. And he didn't know what he was seeing at the time, but that was later expanded and developed by Edwin Hubble into the Hubble law, which underpins the our understanding of the expansion of the universe. So that's one of the fundamental observations in all of astronomy in the 20th century made right up the hill here. That's so super cool. So you've got these two telescopes you've just mentioned. You've got the Clark telescope that's just discovered what you're talking about here with the expansion of the universe and the what's the name of the Pluto telescope? It we well it's it's we call it the Pluto telescope. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> It's it's in the, the the A. Lawrence Lowell telescope sometimes is what we call it because it was underwritten by A. Lawrence Lowell, who was Percival's brother, uh, the president of Harvard at the time. And he, and he provided the funding in the late 1920s for the observatory to build that telescope and renew the Pluto search, which had kind of languished for 10 years after Lowell's death. And so guests can come to Lowell Observatory. They can look at the, the Pluto telescope they can't look through it and then the clark right. telescope they can look through right we can and the the i mean the pluto telescope is we don't use it anymore and it's not really designed to be looked through you know at the business end there's not an eyepiece there's this big holder for a photographic plate so you're not really looking through that there's little finder scopes that go with it the clark telescope on the other hand you know, Percival bought that explicitly to look through and, and study Mars and draw, you know, his renderings of the surface of Mars and what he thought were canals. Um, because the Clark telescope has a very long focal ratio, it's designed for, for seeing fine details, it's got a very small field of view, it's not really a good instrument for scanning the whole sky for planets. So the Pluto telescope has a much wider field of view, so you can just eat up large swaths of sky. But yeah, the Clark refractor was completely refurbished in 2014. And yeah, every night that weather permits, you can actually look through it and see the very same sights that Percival saw well over a century ago. Such an amazing thing to think that people can just come up there and look through that same telescope. It's just yeah, such a lot yeah. of history. And it's amazing optics, um, just incredibly precisely ground uh, lenses up at the business end and just beautiful sights. And we will regularly have people look at Saturn through it and, you know, accuse us of putting a, a little Saturn sticker on the top end, you know. Right? I have people do that to me, too. They're like, did you just put a sticker on there? I'm like, yes, I paid all this money for this telescope and I put a sticker on it. Yes, yes. Because we're what we're we're in this business to trick you. That's what yeah. we're all about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first time I ever saw Jupiter through a telescope was at Lowell Observatory. It oh, was cool. a telescope that's behind the Clark Telescope. And I oh. don't know if that's operational anymore. So, in fact, it is more operational than it's ever been because since you when when was that was probably pre-COVID oh, for sure. That had, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That had to have been... Um, Probably about eight years ago, maybe. Yeah. And so that was a, a very old 16-inch telescope we had in there, a Bowler and Shivens, a very nice telescope of its day, but again, kind of a narrow field of view and not a telescope that was ever so much intended for eyepiece viewing. It was more of a research facility. Um, that has actually, thanks to a very generous gift from uh, some donors, um, that telescope has been replaced with a 24-inch plane wave. Um, and so it is a beautiful facility now, and actually it makes a very nice 
uh, bookend right down the, the walk from the Clark because the Clark is this 120 some year old refractor, 24 inch aperture. And now right down the walk, we have this brand new 24 inch reflector, you know, which is a Cassegrain. So, you know, if, if the Clark is, if the Clark telescope is this long, you know, this one's about that long, right? Cause it's, cause it's a totally different optical design. Um, so it's a really nice way to show people um, not only a beautiful sights of the sky through this brand new 24 inch telescope, but the, the change in technology and the differences in how refracting and a reflecting telescope work. And, you know, since I, I haven't been there since, um, since before COVID, but I know that you guys have added a whole lot more telescopes to oh, yeah. the facility that I haven't got a chance to look through, but tell us a little bit about those. Oh, things. yes, you must come up and see that. So that is the Giovanni Open Deck Observatory, um, which, yeah, we opened in fall of 2019. It is perfect timing for a new public facility, right? <laughs> But um, uh, yeah, yeah. so that has a suite of six telescopes, um, including two plane waves. There is a five-inch tech refractor, which is just spectacular, an eight-inch moonraker refractor. The largest aperture is a 32-inch star structure Dobsonian. And that's actually enough aperture on brighter nebulae. You can see a little bit of color with just the, yeah. with the eye looking through the eyepiece because it's collecting so much light. Um, the advantage here is the telescopes are permanently mounted on piers. There's there's an airplane hangar-like building that's on railroad tracks. And so the whole building rolls back. And that's been a huge advantage for the staff who don't have to set up and take down portable telescopes every night, um, as well as for the visitors, because the telescopes track beautifully. The educators don't have to reposition them on, on stars. And so the lines move more efficiently. It's it's just been a, a a really great addition to our to our outreach offerings, and definitely worth come looking. Uh, it's it's some pretty spectacular views to these telescopes. I've seen pictures of this Moonraker you're talking about. It is the coolest looking telescope. Not only not only just because of the shape of it and everything, but it's red, and I love it. <laughs> it's red and silver with a steampunky design. It's sort of a uh, a nod to the old Clark in, in, in that old construction style, but yeah, it's really beautiful. And and like the Clark, you know, it's a, a long long focal ratio refractor, and so it's very well suited for beautiful views of the moon and planets and extended objects like that. I know that you are actually a bona fide astronomer. And so other than your duties as director of the observatory, what kind of research projects do you get to work on? Well, as I as I sometimes put it, I'm a recovering astronomer. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't I, I I am by training an astronomer. I don't have much time at all to do any research. Um, I was hired at Lowell in 1992 as a postdoc on a very specific program, which was a long-term uh, program observing the sun and sun-like stars and basically sunspot and star spot cycles. And we're interested in understanding how stars vary over decades, centuries, millennia, you know, to sort of compare and provide uh, a broader context for how our own sun might evolve. And the way we do that, you know, it, it would get a little bit boring 
frankly, to observe the same star for 5,000 years. I would just be sick of the project long before we'd observed it that long. Um, so what we do is you know, find the hundreds, 100 or so stars in the sky that are the closest dead ringers to the sun that we can find, and then you know, observe them as, a, as an ensemble that gives us sort of a big, a broader snapshot of how sun-like stars in general vary. And so that tells us about something of things about how the physics of how stars evolve and, and how stellar activity works. It also provides guidance um, in things like climate modeling because solar variations do impact climate and you know, plugging that into climate models and how much we reasonably expect the sun can contribute to global or regional climate change is, is a necessary thing to know. And I know you guys are working on a lot of cool stuff. Not only have you added these new telescopes that you just shared with us about, but you have another project that you're working on that hasn't opened yet. So share with us what you have coming up because I think people really need to make sure that Lowell Observatory is on their radar big time. Yeah, this is going to be quite something. So we talked before about the Giovanni Open Deck Observatory. And sometimes I call that the appetizer. And now we're working on the entree. And, and that is, uh, the official name is the Kemper and Ethel Marley Foundation Astronomy Discovery Center. And this right now is on schedule to open in October of next year, October 2024, probably towards the end of the month. Our current visitor center is about 6,000 square feet. The ADC, as we call it, the Astronomy Discovery Center, is over 40,000 on three levels. It's a $53 million project, and it will have amazing amenities. Um, it will become the gateway to the rest of the campus, in particular to the Open Deck Observatory. But inside, we're going to have state-of-the-art exhibit galleries, one of which is specifically for kids, sort of the zero to eight-year-old set with very tactile and interactive exhibits to, you know, we want to catch all those inquisitive young minds while they're while they're young, and, and a separate astronomy gallery that sort of traces our connection to the universe, you know, from Percival Lowell to how stars work to life in the universe. At, trying to address the question of, you know, where did we come from and are we alone? Two of the marquee amenities, in, instead of a, an indoor planetarium with a dome, we're going to use Flagstaff's Dark Skies as our planetarium. Part of the visitor experience will be to go out on the roof and we will have a 180 seat amphitheater open sky with heated seats, right? In deference to Flagstaff's chilly climate. Um, and live presenters giving you tours of the night sky from about 60 feet up. So you'll be close to treetop level and just a panorama of the local mountains and, and the beautiful dark skies of Northern Arizona. And then inside, instead of a dome, we'll have the Lowell Universe Theater, which will be about, again, about a 180 seat theater with a, a, a wraparound LED screen. And it's really hard to, Give you the impression here in a zoom box but um about 120 feet wide and two stories high with with the most advanced current led technology we, we previewed a a sample of this screen and you look at it and it's like a 3d experience without the glasses it just the, the lights are so light and the darks are so dark it just immerses you so 
we'll be able to take you wherever we want to go in the universe with just incredible visuals. Um, so it's going to be a, just an amazing uh, facility and we're extremely excited to see it. It's about half constructed up there and uh, we should have it done by next late next year. I, I can't wait to see this thing. And I love so much that because you guys have such great skies in Flagstaff, I really love that you are doing an open observatory where they're looking at the actual sky because a lot of places can't do that. They don't have dark enough skies to see enough things to point anything out. So I love that you're doing this. Right. I, I always, yeah, I love, you know, I travel around visiting donors and supporters and from the center of the city, I'll always look up at the sky and, you know, like in Phoenix and Los Angeles, I mean, the faintest thing I can pick out from a downtown hotel is like Orion's belt, right? So second yeah. magnitude stars. So these, you know, people in these urban areas can see what 20 or 30 stars. And yet here, you know, you can actually see the silvery band of the Milky Way from right in Flagstaff because mm -hmm. the skies are that good. Oh, thank you so much for sharing with us about Lowell Observatory. And I just, I really hope that people purposefully make a trip to see your facility. And um, and if they have to plan harder into the, the future, wait till after October, 2024. <laughs> and we might need to chat again when you open. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being with us. All right. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. I started this episode by talking about our sense of awe when we look up at celestial objects. I recently read a tremendous book that talks about this. It's called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life by Dasher Keltner. Awe is mysterious and it's really hard to describe, but we've all felt it. Scientists have studied many of the human emotions but until 15 years ago, there was no science of awe. This book takes a deep dive into this new research on how awe transforms our brains and our bodies. It takes a hard look at awe in history and culture and how everyday awe can change us. If you're a lover of the night sky and nature in general, I am certain you will enjoy this book. You can find it wherever you buy books, and you can also check out the show notes for more information or visit nightskytourist.com slash 67. It's time for our Night Sky Tour for mid-June 2023. Pause the podcast, turn off all the lights, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. Venus has been prominent in the night sky for a couple of months now, and it's soon going to start making its descent toward the western horizon and then out of the night sky. So we're going to take a close look at this bright celestial object tonight. Start by just making yourself comfortable facing toward the west where you can see that really bright object up there. Venus is the second planet from the sun and our closest neighbor, and it's so bright because of how close it is, but also because it's covered with a thick layer of white clouds that reflect a lot of light. Now, because Venus is located between us and the sun, 
we get a different view of it than we do the planets that are farther from the sun than us. For one, if you look at it through a telescope, you'll notice that it has phases, just like our moon. Sometimes it's a crescent, and sometimes you can see most of it lit up. And two, it takes a different path across the sky than the farther planets. Use your imagination for just a moment. Get a picture in your mind of looking toward the sun where you can see Venus going around and around our big star. Can you see that in your mind? What happens? It swings out from the right side of the sun and then it appears to reverse its course until it disappears behind the sun. And then it pops out on the left side and it swings out toward the left until it appears to reverse course again and it disappears in front of the sun where it's too bright for us to look. So looking in that direction and watching that motion creates a really interesting view for us here on Earth. When Venus swings out to the right of the sun, we can see the planet in the early morning before sunrise. And week by week, it appears higher and higher in the sky before the sun comes up. And then it stops moving upward and seems to reverse course, appearing lower and lower from week to week until it vanishes altogether from the pre-dawn sky. And it's now in the path of the sun where we can't look at it. But give it a little bit and suddenly it shows up low on the western horizon right after sunset. And then week by week, it appears higher and higher in the sky until it seems to stop and then reverse course week by week, appearing lower and lower until once again, it disappears into the light of the sun. Mercury does the same thing, but it's so much smaller and it rises such a short distance above the horizon that we don't tend to notice it as much. Venus has been such an interesting planet throughout history and it's featured in so many fascinating mythologies and cultural stories. In ancient times, people didn't know that the planet they saw in the evening sky was the same planet they saw in the morning sky, but they could see that they looked an awful lot alike and had the same brightness. In some cultures, it became known as the morning star and the evening star. I love learning about ancient cultures, so their views of Venus intrigue me. So I'm going to share a few of them with you as you sit here and you look at this gorgeous planet tonight. We'll start with the Sumerians. Now, the Sumerians were pretty smart people because they knew as early as 5,000 years ago that the morning and evening stars were one object in the night sky. They saw Venus as their goddess, Inanna, who was also known as Ishtar by the later Babylonians. Inanna was a goddess of love and war, and she ruled over birth and death, which makes sense with the rising and setting of it. In one myth called Inanna's Descent into the Underworld, the goddess descends into the netherworld where she's killed, and then she resurrects three days later to return to the heavens. This myth reminded the ancient Sumerians of the movements of Venus and its disappearance from the sky from time to time. Okay, moving on to the Canaanites. The ancient Canaanite god Hillel represented Venus as the morning star, kind of like a male version of the Babylonian Ishtar. 
In the Canaanite myth from about 4,000 years ago, Hillel tried to take the throne from the supreme god El, who they believed lived on a mountain to the north. And Hillel tried to rise higher than all the other gods, but in battle he was cast down to rule the underworld instead. And then the Hebrews. So in the Hebrew Bible, the prophet Isaiah condemns the king of Babylon for his treatment of the Israelites about 2,800 years ago. In chapter 14, the prophet actually borrows the Canaanite myth of Hillel, name and all. Here's what it says in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. And in Hebrew, that's the word Hillel, son of Shahar. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. In Hebrew is the word El. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, Elyon, which is a name used in the Bible for the Hebrew God, and also an ancient name for the Canaanite god El. And it continues by saying, But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, which is Hades, the underworld, to the depths of the pit. So this Latin name for Hillel, or Venus, is the word Lucifer, which means shining one or light bearer in Latin. Now the King James Bible translators borrowed the Latin name Lucifer when translating Isaiah 14, and this led to a later belief that the Christian Satan was a fallen angel named Lucifer. But most Bible translations today have dropped the name Lucifer and just use its actual meaning, shining one. But the new name for Satan has stuck. Next, we go to the Maya. For the Maya, Venus, or the great star, held the most important place in the night sky. They believed that the position of Venus influenced life on Earth. And they timed their wars and their other important events by watching where it went in the sky. Through careful observations, the Maya developed a religious calendar called the Ha'ab about 2,500 years ago. It was made up of 18 months of 20 days each with an extra five days at the end of the year known as Weyab. The Maya thought Weyab was a dangerous time because portals between the mortal world and the underworld dissolved. This allowed the mischievous deities to cause disasters for the living. So to protect themselves, the Maya didn't leave their houses and they didn't wash or comb their hair. And then there are the Greek and Roman mythologies. The Greeks knew that Phosphorus, the morning star, and Hesperos, the evening star, were the single planet Venus by about 2,300 years ago. The Greek mythology of Phaethon, or Shining One, resembles the Canaanite and Hebrew myths of an ambitious god who has shown his place. Ancient Romans spoke Latin, and they knew Venus as the morning star by its Latin name, Lucifer, or Lightbringer. And in their mythology, Lucifer carried a torch and announced the dawn. To the Romans, Lucifer was sacred to the goddess Venus, the name that was later chosen as the scientific name for the planet. 
Be sure to check out the show notes for links mentioned in this episode or visit nightskytours.com slash 67. That's nightskytours.com slash 67. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.